we will be looking in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. I'm in the midst of a series. Well, I can assure you I'm not in the midst of it, at least not in the, the middle of it. I have no idea how many sermons it will be. We're not even to the fall into sin yet. And this is like eight or 10 or 12 sermons, I'm not sure. But what, we're trying to, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to ask the question, um, you know, what should our lives look like now? What should gratefulness uh, 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 be grounded in besides our redemption? And I'm going to say, well, on, should be grounded in what God requires of us. What does God require of us? Uh, to obey his law. Does his law in that context mean every single verse in the Bible? No, because we can distinguish. There's something called the natural law, the work of the law written on our hearts, which is then publicly uh, promulgated, which is a public formal declaration of it, at Mount Sinai. And there's somehow, some way, there's a relationship between the propositions that are contained on the two stone tablets and that which God originally wrote on, on hearts. So we're trying to say, well, what does that look like, this natural law, this work of the law written on our heart, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ? Because obedience for the people of God prior to that required strict adherence to some laws that aren't on our hearts but were revealed for a purpose and for a time, what should obedience to the Ten Commandments look like uh, as Christians? So that's what we're doing. In order to do that, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I was confirmed, it was confirmed to me that at least one person has appreciated the fact that I'm, I'm going slow. There's two reasons I'm going slow. First is you... And the second is me, okay? You're slow, and I'm slow. And I have to preach sermons. This is just the way I do it. Sorry. I have to convince myself I'm getting it right. And so I preach sermons in one sense to myself, and I hope other people come along and think along with me and go, yep, and you're going to have some aha moments. Like these trees. Why did I jump over the trees and go right to Adam and Eve? My wife was gone. Maybe it had something to do with missing her. I went right to the first marriage last week. You remember I did that. Uh, but I jumped over these trees, the tree of life, uh, Genesis 2, um, 7 or 9, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis uh, 2, 2, uh, 17. So we're going to look at those trees. But to back up a little and just try to help everybody gather up the loins of their minds and see where we've been and where we're going and why, our Creator, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has special claims upon us by virtue of the fact that we didn't create ourselves. There wasn't a time when we were not, and then we thought, see how ludicrous that is? If there wasn't a time when we were not, and then we thought, to be a creature in the created in the image of God is my will. You can't do that if you're... There was a time when I was not, but then I made myself to be something. Nope. So the, we have to say, well, well no. There has to be a first cause that causes things that aren't to be and then sustains them. 
somehow, some way. And this is God. He's done this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he made man, male and female, uh, after his own likeness, according to his image. Uh, he made Adam and Eve. He made them upright. Um, that's, that comes from Ecclesiastes 7. I think it means morally upright. But here's another issue. Did God make Adam physically upright? It seems like he probably did, right? He, he, he was mature. He was, Adam and Eve were created perfect, which is an old word for meaning fully formed. They were adults. And they had this work of the law written on their hearts. They had a, they had a domestic chaplain called a conscience. They could interact with creaturely things, things other than themselves, and enjoy God by virtue of this reasoning process in conjunction with the righteous requirements of the law on their hearts. They were created in the image of God before their fall into sin. And all men, however, all men, by the, uh, excuse me, not however, all men have what they had, but it's messed up. The work of the law written on their hearts, Romans 2.15. So Adam, uh, uh, Paul goes back to creational language and says, by virtue of being created, Jews and Greeks, people with a Bible or without the Bible, with special re written revelation or without special rev written revelation, have this work of the law still on their hearts. Now, they don't have the ability they have the same faculties, reason, will, uh, affections, but they don't have the same use of those faculties. How do we know? We're here. We got problems. We create idols all the time. We have we 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 throw our affections on creaturely things, looking to find ultimate satisfaction from it, at least for a moment, but it doesn't work, you know. So this side of the fall into sin, it's not like we've become less than created in the image of God. The, the use of our faculties have been stained and tarred. So that if you read Romans 1, you see that everybody basically does the same thing, exchanges, exchanges the creator for a creature and worships dumb things, things that don't speak or things that aren't God. They have this thing, this gift via creation, that is Adam and Eve, uh, many have called original righteousness. That comes from contemplating the creation account and other passages that kind of Look back on the creation of Adam and Eve. Behold, I have found only this, this is Solomon, that man, that God made man upright, morally upright, but they have all sought out many devices. So man was made uh, morally upright and with the ability to act righteously, which means in strict accordance with the natural law, the law by virtue of nature or creation. That was a part of his original constitution or makeup. So this law was regulating somehow, some way, in the theater of his mind and conscience, uh, his decision-making. It was, it was, it's, it's the moral 
ethical default that is natural for him by virtue of his creation to fall back on when he tries to interpret things out there. Prior to the fall into sin, man could see a thing, will to move toward that thing, enjoy that thing. We saw it last week. Okay, just the, the, the building of Eve was before the fall into sin. What happened when Adam saw it? He obeyed all ten commandments. Enjoy the thing and all of this, seeing a thing, moving toward it, attaching himself to it somehow. All this by virtue of his reasoning capacity directed by the law of God within him. And his conscience would have said, amen, amen, amen to his actions. Uh, Are you like that now? No, it's not us. He could do all of that without sinning. So in one sense, we could say Adam knew the difference between right and wrong by virtue of his created status in the image of God being made morally upright with original righteousness. If the law, work of the law written on the heart somehow, some way corresponds in substance, at least, to what we call the Ten Commandments, there are, there are prohibitions. Matter of fact, most of them are, right? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. So he would have known the doing of that is the breaking of the law by virtue of his creation. Now, a few sermons ago, I focused on Adam because the Bible does that. You remember, uh, uh, we went to Romans 5. Uh, Adam, who was a type of uh, him who was to come, that is a type of Christ. If you're going to understand Christ in the gospel, you've got to understand Adam. The more you understand Adam and what he fell short of, the more it helps you understand the vocation, the calling, the responsibility of the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul also says, in Adam all die. So we use two texts to help us think through Adam. All die. Death came by virtue of not Eve's sin. Okay. Who did the serpent first deceive? Eve. Who transgressed a law that was revealed after his creation, first exclusively to him, the first Adam. Part of Adam's vocation or calling was to obey God, enjoy him and the other created things around him, but in a subordinate way, that is the created things. Adam was made outside the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2-7, then put in it, Genesis 2-8. So now we're finally getting back to the garden here, before Eve exists. In that garden, there were two special trees. We have in Genesis uh, 2-9, these words, the tree of life. By the way, the scripture reading The bread of life, you think it might be connected? Somebody said yes, that's next week. Quit raining on my parade there. The tree of life, okay, that's tree number one, special Edenic tree number one. There were other trees, but here is one special tree, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 2.15, God is said to have put Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. And then in 2.16 and 17, 
the second tree comes up again, and I want to read this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, now, this is special extra-creational revelation given from the Lord God to Adam prior to Eve's being built out of Adam, right? Because that happens right afterwards. So if I was thinking rightly, I would have dealt with this last week and then dealt with Adam and Eve next week. But it's what happens when your wife's not there, so it was your fault, honey. Now, by the time we get to chapter 3, most of, I'm assuming most of you realize this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a, a huge no-no, and it's the, the creaturely mechanism that was kind of dangled by the serpent in front of the woman. And so this, this ends up being very important. And Eve gives us a testimony that somehow, some way, she knew this. Now, maybe the Lord God, after he formed Eve... Maybe he created sound that, create, that communicated to her the content of Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Could be, or Adam told her, because he was a, the first prophet, responsible to tell other people about what God has revealed through him. Whatever, we know that by the time the fall into sin happens, she knows about it. She's apart from her husband, or he, he's apart from her kind of hiding I, it's, it's not a good scene, whatever's happened, whatever happens in Genesis 3. We know it doesn't because if you read Genesis 4 and following, there's a whole bunch of sin in the world right after this happens. Something not only happened to Adam and Eve, their created state was mangled, twisted, distorted, but Adam and Eveites, their seed, ends up being the same as well, messed up. So, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Okay, Who has authority over the trees that that were made? Ultimate authority. God does. Okay, So this is a a rightful demand by him. Look, from any uh, uh, tree of the garden you may eat freely, but, I'm going to restrict you, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, so uh, he's, he's very bountiful on the one hand. You can eat from all of them. And then he restricts, his, restricts it. But, 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 but not this one. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Something, some uh, extra creational um, state of existence is going to come upon you. You're going to die. Judgments come in your way if you eat of this one tree. Thus far, Adam has the law written on his heart, and this added prohibition threatening death. Since Adam is identified as a type of him who was to come, and the last Adam, looking at what our Lord did, helps us understand what Adam fell short of when he sinned. I've said this before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's the first sinner, Adam? What did he fall short of? A state of existence he didn't have by virtue of his creation. Glory. Listen to the words in Luke 24, 25, and 26. And he said to them, this is our Lord, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, based on the prophets' writings, for, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his, you know the next word, 
glory. Why does he suffer? Because of he's the last Adam, and he's a public person. He's representing other people that are sinners. Why does he enter his glory? Because it is a state of existence according to his human nature that was actually offered to Adam upon his successful obedience to God's either positive law or this prohibition. This glory is that to which Adam fell short by sinning. And his first sin was that one. And the death that God threatened came upon him and the rest of us because of that sin. Because he ate from that tree. So we got to figure out, this is a special tree. We, we need to figure out what it's all about. And I hope to help you think through that today. So this glory that our Savior enters into is that glory which Adam fell short of by sinning, by transgressing the law of God. I would say this is a glorious status of human nature, body and soul. It is, in fact, what our Lord merited for us, and he will give to us. What Adam did not merit, but never, never gained, our Lord merits by virtue of his obedience. How do we know? God raised him from the dead. Heaven said amen to his obedience. Now, well, watch this. Not only did he uh, merit it for us, he'll give us that glory, that status. Listen to these words. Paul tells us it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Gain the glory of Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He has divine glory. I'm going to be God someday. Does it mean that? No. But if he suffered according to his human nature then whatever glory is, it's according to his human nature. And both of those benefit believers in Christ. I'm going to glory. I'm going to ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, body and soul, renovated, unable to sin and fall into sin and no doctor's appointments and no cancer and no strokes and no colds and no tears and and no worries, and no idolatry, and all that stuff. I'm going there because he, he, he's a hero of redemption. Because he, he, is, he is the captain uh, on the, of the train. He's the engine. He's the agent through whom God brings many sons to glory. Our Lord will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his, there it is again, glory. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. So what the first Adam fell short of, the last Adam arrived at and will bring many other sons to glory with him, Hebrews 2.10. Now last week, what did we do last week? We're still looking at doing psychological analysis of Adam's and Eve's souls, what are they comprised of, made up of? What are their duties and responsibilities? Last week, we looked at what happened after, after the, actually, after the prohibition in Genesis 2.17, and that is Eve comes on the scene. It was a very, I think it was Adam's happiest moment up until that time in his life because he had seen all the animals and they weren't suitable helpmeets for him. 
And God sticks him in the garden. He names the animals. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes his wife out of his side. And then Adam is able to engage with Eve intellectually, with rationally, and to think properly. And he basically says, God's given me a wife, which would correspond with things already written on his heart. So we looked at the first marriage of Scripture following the lead of our Lord's apostle, Paul. You remember Paul in Ephesians 5 toward the end? He, he says, look, looking back to Adam, uh, the, the Genesis 2.24, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. This mystery is great. It's like, Paul, stop. Don't write anymore. What in the world are you talking about? He was talking about Adam and Eve. Adam, a type of Christ. Eve, type of the church. Remember when he was on the cross? They poked his side. And out came the forgiveness of sin and the symbol of regeneration. Blood and water. <laughs> I'm not the first one to say that, by the way. By the way, I try never to be the first one to say things, unless I'm just making up views to say that can't be right, that can't be right, which I'm going to do later if I ever get to this. So we looked at the marriage, a lot to learn from there. Um, and the biggest thing is um, um, we learned that um, when our Lord comes on the scene, of this world. He's identified as a bridegroom who rescues his bride. That just didn't come, that's just not John the Baptist going, let's make up some new metaphors here. That has old pedigree all the way back to the first marriage. So now we got to look at these trees because I skipped over them last week. Adam and Eve and the special Edenic trees, the two special Edenic trees. Uh, you know me, we're going to try to get a whole Bible glimpse of these trees. We're going to allow Scripture after Genesis 2.9, after Genesis 2.16 and 17, to shed light on it if it does. But we've got to, first of all, look at the text you know, in its context, first of all. So note Genesis 2.9. Now let me read Genesis 2.7 through 9 to get a little context. Here we read these words. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground... And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he's made, God forms this thing called a garden, Edenic garden, and then Adam is brought to that garden. And out of the ground, the Lord, the Lord God caused did I say this? In Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we have the two special Edenic trees that we have to identify. They're, the fact that they're there is one thing. The function, that's what we're asking. What are these things doing there? Why are they, why are they singled out as special Edenic trees? 
Note also Genesis 2.17. Here's 2.16 and 17 again. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, now again, this is before Eve. So this is just special revelation. Revelation added to creational revelation. Given to Adam from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now let's make, let me help you with some general observations here. Prior to the making of Eve, the Lord God commands Adam in a twofold manner, eat freely from any tree except one. This is a twofold law, we might say, from God. In addition to whatever's on his heart by virtue of being created in the image of God. So this is new law, right? Not written on his heart. It's a special subsequent revelation of a law from God. So it's added to what we would call the natural law. And there's a technical term for that. Some of you have heard it before. It's called positive law. That is law in addition to natural or moral law on the heart. So this is not a natural law. This is not like you don't come out of the womb, you're growing up, and you go, well, I can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's written on my heart. It's not written on anyone's heart. It came afterwards. Adam wasn't created with it in him. God revealed it to him after his creation and in the garden itself. It came from God after Adam was made and after he was placed in the uh, uh, garden. And because of this, older theologians called this, again, a positive law, a law added to the law of nature for some distinct purpose, right? Is this just willy-nilly purposeless? You need from all of them except this one. Why, God? I don't know. I just thought I'd say that. Do you think that would have, that's heaven's response? I don't know. I thought I'd just say that. There has to be a function, a purpose. And so maybe we can drill down a little deeper by asking, well, what kind of tree was this? And if we can find out what kind of tree it is, maybe it'll help us understand its function. Now, my wife informed me. She heard an argument once that this was a lemon tree. The tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil was a lemon tree. You can ask her afterwards what the arguments were. Now, others have argued that it was an apple tree. And the reason why they do that is because a verse in Song of Solomon, where the bride and bridegroom in Song of Solomon 8.5 are under an apple tree or around an apple tree. So there's at least some biblical connection there. Some think it was a fig tree. You ever heard that view? Fig tree. Um, By the way, what kind of tree did Jesus curse? Fig tree. Um, Eve took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3, 6, B. Right after that, this happens. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. Genesis 3, 7. So there's the fig tree argument. It's a fig tree. Why? Because... 
Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, grabbed fig leaves, and they were right there. It must have been the fig, must have been the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me say this. I don't think we can know for certain what kind of a tree it was. We want to know, though. I don't think God's revealed it. That it's a tree, that it has a specific function. I think we can find out its function, why God put it there. But what kind of tree it was? And how about this? Is it a kind of tree that might still exist? Because you know when the flood came, paradise or the Garden of Eden was, was eroded, destroyed. And, and maybe it was a special, this is another view, comes from my wife. Maybe it was a special tree, the only one ever of its kind. Okay, there's some people going, maybe. These are all just maybes. So here's what one of my heroes, who's dead and with Christ now says. It would be a, ra- it would be a rash no less than a useless curiosity to inquire into those things which God has willed to conceal from us. There you go. If, if he's right, I think he is. Don't ask that question. I mean, ask the question, and if there's no answer, then just say, hey, must not be important. God must not want us to know what kind of a tree, but he still, I think, wants us to know what, how, how it's functioning, because it's still, it's weird. He makes him, makes him in his image, law written on his heart, uh, original righteousness, Puts him in the garden, tells us there's trees there, tree of life. Somebody died on a tree to gain life for us, by the way. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil doesn't tell us what either kind of tree is, but they're there and they're functioning somehow, some way. Because just think of the tree of life in the midst of the garden. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to rain on the parade for next week, but there's the trees in midst is an interesting way to put that, and it's picked up later. It's in the book of Revelation. It's about Jesus. So what kind of tree? Whether I don't know. Um, it's an apple tree, some people say. How do we know? Have you ever bitten into an apple with a worm in it? It's the devil reminding us. Because worms are serpent-like. I told you I'd get that in there. I don't know if that's anyone's view about worms and apples or not. But the more important question is the function question. Okay, not the form. What kind of tree was it? Um, because we definitely don't want that kind of tree in our backyard. This is when we're gathering up the loins of our minds now. We're really drilling down here, right? we got to do this. What's the function of the tree? That is a better question. Not the form, apple, fig, or uh, lemon, or some exclusively unique tree that's all by itself in the history of existence. But what is its function? Why did God put it there, and what is God trying to teach Adam and us by virtue of its presence. Well, so I'm going to offer some, I think, hope, helpful uh, things to help you think through and explain its function. First of all, it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? 
But is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it in itself was a rational or reasoning creature that possessed knowledge of good and evil? See, see that would have, if I said that before Hollywood, people would have gone, what in the world are you talking about? But now you can watch movies where trees have lips and talk, right? I mean, Disney and all that stuff. Do you think the tree was a reasoning creature? And Adam went, could you share some of the uh, uh, knowledge of good and evil that you have? That's not, that's not right. So it's not, it's not a, a rational tree in that sense. Some might want to say it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in itself it had infused power to produce knowledge in Adam he did not already have. Okay, God gives, infuses this mysterious power in a tree that if Adam ate from it, he could get knowledge that there is a thing called good and a thing called evil that he did not have by virtue of his creation. Are you following? Because if you're not, you're going to go to sleep. Let me wake you up. This is, this, this is worth thinking through. This, the, the great theologians of the history of the Christian church, they thought through these kind of things, and that's why we have the, the rich and thick doctrinal statement that we do about Adam's creation and the fall into sin, because other people really thought about this. So I'm just helping you. I'm not one of those persons. I'm borrowing, okay? Um, in other words, the tree is pharmaceutical or knowledgeaceutical or whatever it would be. Pseudoceutical. No, not pseudoceutical. The tree has a power to alter Adam's state. The tree does. Adam was created one way, and now if he takes and eats from this tree, he'll change the state of creation merely by the power that the tree has to change him. You know, the death that's threatened is divine judgment, right? God changed Adam by virtue of his sin, and it was judgment. The tree didn't have that kind of power. We don't want to give divine power to trees. If you're tracking, you're going, well, what about the tree of life? I'll get there next week. But the tree of life does have divine power because it's a type of Jesus. So it's not pharmaceutical. It's not, ra- it's not a rational tree. It's not a pharmaceutical tree. This, the pharmaceutical view would assume something it cannot prove, namely that Adam had no moral compass by virtue of being created in the image of God and needed to gain something above his creation in order to make value judgments concerning right and wrong. Does anyone want to say the tree can give power to Adam and Eve to discern right and wrong? Didn't they already have that? They already had it, or at least Adam had it, and then Eve got it once she was made. So I don't think the, the rational tree view works. And I don't think the, I made up the pharmaceutical, not the view. I made up the pharmaceutical, the term. Pharmaceutical tree uh, works. And if they don't work, what's the function of the tree? Now, I'm not going to say when God has not spoken, the preacher should shut up on this one, because I think he has spoken. The twofold law of Genesis 2, 16 and 17, eat of all of them except this one, was an ex, uh, 
exploratory law. I'll explain what I mean by that. A positive law added to the natural law for the trial of the obedience of Adam. Adam's on trial. This is, this is a probation. Some of you have heard that word used in this kind of a context. The tree itself was not evil, right? Well, it was an apple tree. Therefore, if you have apple trees, you're, you are yourself evil. It's a sin to have an apple tree. No, the tree wasn't evil. You know, trees can't be evil. You know what trees are? Good. They're not evil. Trees can't transmit evil. Uh, you know, a moral privation, privation of soul or something. They're not rational. They can't say, hey, let me tell you about right and, right and wrong. They can't reason. They can't think. Sorry if you're a tree lover, tree hugger. Um, the prohibition about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a test. In fact, at least two verses in later scripture use the word covenant to describe what's going on here in Jeremiah and in Hosea, two prophets, looking back, well, actually looking at the sin of Israel, connect the sin of Israel as covenant breakers and the sin of all men. They connect the sin of Israel and all men all the way back to Adam who first broke a covenant imposed upon him, added to his creational state in this prohibition or this positive law of Genesis 2.17. Now you're going, man, we're drilling farther. We have to drill even farther, though. Did Adam have a sense or knowledge of what constitutes good and evil by virtue of his creation? Listen to John Gill. John Gill's an 18th century uh, British pastor. Uh, by the way, John Gill, I don't know if he was the first pastor of the church, but it ended up, Spurgeon ended up pastoring the same church. And like they had three ministers in like 140 something years. Each one of them, I think uh, Spurgeon ministered there the least because he died relatively young, but. Three or four of them. Anyway, he's one of those guys like 50 years. Uh, John Gill taught himself Latin, Hebrew, Greek, or maybe at a tutor. But by the time he's like 12 or 13, he, he, all the languages, the biblical languages, the, the theological language, Latin. Uh, you read John Gill, he quotes weird blank, probably Syriac and all kinds of things. Listen to him. By the law of nature inscribed on his heart, he knew the difference between good and evil. He already knew it. And that what God commanded was good. And what he forbid was evil. I think Gill's right. Adam wasn't created morally neutral. Reading ahead in Genesis helps us get to the answer 
of what constitutes, excuse me, the answer to our question, did Adam have a sense or knowledge of what constitutes good and evil by virtue of his creation? That's our question. Now listen, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field when the Lord God had made which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you see what's happening here, can you trust the veracity of a positively revealed law of God that most likely your hubby told you? And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now, what's going on with the middle? I thought that was a tree of life. Seems to be kind of fuzzy. There's fuzziness going on here. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes... Now, remember what God said. The day you eat from it, you're going to die. Divine judgment is going to come. The corroding aspect of death is going to come. Your human nature is going to be judged and corrupted. And slowly but surely, your body's going to give way and your soul's going to be separated from your body and, you know, all that stuff. For God knows that in the day, this is serpent. Uh, By the way, who's the serpent? How do you know it's Satan? Because she read the Bible. In Revelation Revelation 2 times, the serpent is called Satan, the devil of old. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Note a few things. First of all, Adam or God told Eve about Genesis 2. The stuff we read in Genesis 2, either God or Adam revealed that to Eve. Second notice, the serpent knew about it as well. The serpent had some knowledge of this special revelation given on top of Adam's created status. Third, notice how that slithery enemy of God and man twists the word of God. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it. He's not, God didn't tell you everything you needed to know. God, I know, the serpent's basically saying, I know what God knows that he didn't tell you. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be more like God. Don't you want to be more like God? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's as if the serpent were saying something like this. It's pharmaceutical, right? 
Take the pill. You'll become like God. Knowing good and evil, something you obviously don't know anything about. God is holding something for, for you, uh, holding something from you that would be good for you. None of us struggle with that, right? If you eat it, you'll be like God. Who wouldn't want to be that? Unquote, putting words in the devil's mouth. Now, verse 7 helps us as well, I think. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The words, and they knew, are vital, I think, to understand correctly. This can't refer to something they did not know in all senses prior to this. Neither Adam nor Eve were created morally neutral, but positively righteous and holy. This, and they knew. What does that mean? I think it must refer to their experience. Thank you. Here's John Gilligan. He became experientially sensible of the difference between good and evil, between obedience and disobedience to the will of God. He found by sad experience what good he had lost or might have enjoyed and what evil he had brought on himself and his posterity he might have avoided. Recall these words. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Some state of existence different from your created state will come upon you as an execution of divine justice. It's not pharmaceutical view of the tree. It's God threatening judgment upon him. If you're there going, okay, we're done drilling, right? Here's my next line. But we must drill still deeper with this question. Because it's early. Why was such a prohibition given? Here's the old Turton guy from the 17th century. He's Italian, by the way. That by interdicting, that is forbidding the fruit of a beautiful tree, he, God, might teach that he, his, Adam's, happiness does not consist on the enjoyment of earthly things. Otherwise, God would not have wished to prevent his using it. The prohibition is not a bad thing, is it? How dare God do that? He doesn't have the right to prohibit something. Sure he does. This is a law coming from God. Therefore, it's good and right. Its aim was not a bad thing, but a good thing. In other words, cling to me and me alone. And prove it by not doing this one little thing. You got all the trees. This is not like Abraham. Take your son, your only begotten son, 
take him up on a hill and sacrifice him. That's hard. So this isn't a difficult thing to obey. Well, it shouldn't have been. We rightly praise Abraham for his willingness to obey a hard command. But this command for Adam was not a hard command. It wasn't difficult. Going back in history, here's what Augustine says, North African theologian of the 4th and 5th century. Whoever thinks the condemnation of Adam either too great or unjust assuredly knows not how to measure the great iniquity of sinning where there was so great a facility of not sinning. In other words, he's in paradise. It's not a bunch of vile sinners around him trying to lure him in uh, by dangling something out in front of him. As therefore the obedience of Abraham is deservedly celebrated as great because the slain of his own son, a most difficult thing, was commanded. So also in paradise by so much the greater was the disobedience as that which was commanded was not of difficulty. So, we can say this. The sinfulness of sin becomes exceedingly sinful when we think about this first sin. The divine verdict upon it is guilty. Was he guilty? Yeah. Did he do something God said don't do? Yes. Should he have done it? No, did he, before he do it, could he have said some things are right and some things are wrong by virtue of his creation? Yes. Before he did it and after he heard the prohibition, could he have said some things are right and some things are wrong by virtue of being created in the image of God and God just added another wrong thing to that law? Yeah, he could have said that. By the way, when the guilty verdict's pronounced on him to Adam and Eve, say, wait a minute, you can't judge us, because that happens in 3, 12, and 13, uh, 14 and following. They're going, stop. Can we, st- can we try it again? Or this is unjust. You don't see Adam and Eve whining like that. Uh, they agree with it. Death began to take its corroding course Within them, they became what they are not, were not by sinning. But it wasn't the sin itself that caused the change in them. It was the divine verdict against them. By the way, since sin brought a divine verdict that changes us, so that we're not like Adam and Eve before they sinned, so that it's a divine act, What do we need? We need another divine act, right? We need God to do something with us because we're all messed up. They became that they were not by sinning. Instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Instead of being upright morally, they became polluted. Though we are not told what, uh, told about Adam and Eve's subsequent sins. You ever read the rest of it? It doesn't tell us about much about them at all. But is there sin after they sinned? What do their kids do? One of them murders his brother. Cain was of the evil one uh, from the beginning, for he murders his brother. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Talking about Adam and Eve's kids. Murder. 
What else happens not long after the, this account? We got murder. We're going to have a bunch of lying. We're going to have polygamy. We're going to have idolatry. We're going to have the Lord making a divine uh, 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 indictment upon humanity. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Something massive happened to the human race upon the eating of that fruit. After the first fruit was eaten, the world was never and has never been the same. The first creation has been spoiled by sin. Man is no longer as he was from his creator's hand. All of us are now, in the language of Paul, dead in our trespasses and sins. And what we don't need is just better advice. Doctor, whoever. Um, I almost said Dr. Donahue, but I think he's probably dead by now, isn't he? Is he still alive, Phil Donahue? Oh, okay. Dr. Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin. You gotta be old to know those names. We don't need better advice. What we need is better advice. We need education. If we could just get the proper education, just get better advice to people. No, read Romans 1. We don't need better advice. We need something way better than just good advice. We need, um, the first creation was messed up. What do we need? We need a new creation. The first Adam didn't take people to glory. What do we need? We don't need to be our own Adamites. Because Adam was a sinless son of God. We're not sinless. We don't need to be put back at the starting line and see if we can do better. We got guilt, the original sin, the guilt and the pollution that happens to human nature by virtue of divine justice against the transgression of this positive law, which, by the way, also proved that in his heart, he didn't, he didn't care in his heart for the other law he had either. Because if he did, he wouldn't have done that. So that's why old, the old, all the old guys said, well, what commandment of the ten did he break? All of them. I think I have a quote that helps you think through that. So we don't need a, you know, a creaturely fixed. We need a new creational work of God. We need to be able to say things like, if I'm in Christ, I'm new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. We need stuff like that. And you know what? You know where I got that from. That's in the Bible. If you're connected to Christ, you're within this realm of what the Bible calls new creation. I think a few weeks ago I said this. It's interesting now. The first or old creation starts out massive. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and then focuses on on male and female in the image of God. The new creation starts out in the womb of our Lord's mother and then comes out and then ends with the whole thing renovated and all of God's enemies uh, put in their proper place. So we need a new Adam. And in our Lord, we have such an Adam. Let's pray.
We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that anything that is not accurate in line with heaven's intent for giving us these things would be blown out of our minds and the rest would be deeply worked into the fabric of our thinking so that we, not only that we think right, but we worship better, we serve better, we love better. You and our neighbors. So help and help us to uh, sing in response of what we've heard. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.